All right, if I could have you return to your seat. We are in our last sermon on our small series titled Repent and Be Loved. The idea of this sermon series is that there are four like big areas in our life in which we, we hold on to dearly. So we have looked at our desire for acceptance, significance, and control. These are big categories. This morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of comfort, how we, how we look to be comforted amidst life's uh, pain and problems. And um, one of the things that we're asking you to do in, in these four different categories is to turn away from your independent of living and trying to, to bring your comfort, to give your significance, to bring acceptance, to give control, to turn from these realities and to turn to God. This ultimately is what repentance is. So many people think repentance is turning from our godlessness, our independence, to, um, to, to a godless or godliness. Like, I better be do this. I better rewrite. When repentance is simply turning from our godlessness to God. And so we're going to turn, hopefully this morning from our godlessness of trying to find comfort in our own way, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, and saying to God, give us comfort the way that you have designed it. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 16, which is called a mictum of David. I can, um, don't know exactly what mictum means, um, but it is a poem. And so we're going to be looking at this poem. It is not very long. It's 11 verses. If you have a Bible, I'll encourage you to get that. Um, open in your Bible or in your phone. We'll be studying this together. If you would just prefer to listen, um, that's fine as well. But Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm gonna pray for us once again before we jump into this word. Lord, we are coming to a very, very important subject for everyone in this room. And we have just read of David's psalm where he leans into you and finds joy. Lord, what I ask of your spirit this morning, for me and for my friends in here, is that they would take to heart the very disposition of David and that they would end experience the great joy that comes from you. Oh, Lord, we need this joy. Amen. In the mid-90s movie, Dumb and Dumber, 
one of my favorites. The character Lloyd Christmas, played by Jim Carrey, walks towards the exit of a hotel bar. As he walks towards the door, his attention is grabbed by a framed newspaper clipping which reads, Man Walks on the Moon. In typical Lloyd Christmas behavior, he is absolutely floored with great excitement. And he enters into the hotel lobby and announces to people, We've landed on the moon! Now, about once or twice a year, I have the same sort of experience. It's not with landing on the moon, though that is amazing. Can we just, for a moment, acknowledge that it's pretty awesome that we've been on the moon? But I have this response with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, number one. And the question and answer goes like this. What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Two weeks ago, I pondered this question with the, the second through fifth graders as I taught them um, during the sermon. And for some reason, I was once again floored by the wisdom of this question and answer. Like Lloyd Christmas, I was stunned. And I wanted to go to these kids and to, to you, just like Lloyd Christmas, we were made for joy. Can you believe this? These crusty old Puritans from England who, who walk so tight, and this is my, my imagination, and they're just ye and thou and she and blah, 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 all this stuff are saying, guess what? The whole purpose of life is to glorify God and to have joy. The crusty old people say life is meant to be one of laughter, of rejoicing, of happiness, of enjoyment. Guys, we were made for joy. Can you believe that? Seriously, can you may we were made believe we were made for joy? We were made for joy to find comfort and enjoyment in this life from God. That is one of your ends. Joy. But in saying this, I have to acknowledge that there is a tension that comes up in all of our lives. A tension that must be acknowledged for us to be sane people. That in our desire and in our cre created order for joy, there is also the reality of pain and suffering. We were made for joy, but we live in the midst of pain and suffering. The pain and the suffering can be internal, but it can also be caused by external realities. And this, this tension that, that is in all of us seems nearly impossible to escape. But here's the truth of all of us in this desire to be made for joy and to, to experience this comfort that, that comes, that we can experience, that we can think to, that we've all tasted in some form and fashion. We all try to do something. We all try to get back to that moment to, to allow the joy endorphins to, to flood over our body. Some of us do this in the midst of this tension of life by, by, by pursuing experiential moments. Others will seek it hardworking to garner recognition for their power and for their intellect. Some go on vacations thinking that the vacation is going to, you know, somehow magically make them better. Some people want to get the newer and better home or car, more money, thinking that more money will be the problem or will resolve this tension of all of our lives. So whether we receive more money or numb with substances like alcohol or drugs, we all seek to deal with this tension that all of us experience. 
This desire for joy in the midst of pain and suffering. But here's the thing. We know that the end of the vacation often brings more anxiety than the beginning of it. We know that more money means more problems. We know that when the substance wears off, the pain and the suffering are once again right in our midst. And here we are, left at square one, desiring comfort and joy amidst the pain and the tribulation of our lives. Where do we go from this? How do we make sense of this? Our desire and being made for joy amidst our pain and our suffering. When turning to Psalm 16, I think we find a poem that articulates a disposition that resolves this tension. It's a poem of David, a mictum. In this poem, David finds his comfort from God alone. And this is even in light of pain and suffering. Consider how David begins his poem in verse one. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What's assumed in this statement? What's assumed in this statement is that David is encountering something that's causing discomfort. Something that is causing him to need comfort. Amidst pain and comfort, David pleads with God. Now, we don't know the difficulty. I mean, you can just read what David endured in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. He endured a lot. In fact, I would say that David might have endured more than all of us in this room. He suffered over and over and over again. But that's beyond the point. We know that this man suffered. But notice how he ends the poem. Notice what he says at the very end. He is experiencing difficulties. There's a tension in his life. But by the end of the poem, he says, You, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David, in this poem, if you want to summarize this whole poem in one simple sentence, it's this. That David finds comfort from God in the midst of pain and suffering. His joy is not in his personal kingdom. His joy is not in his wealth or military victories that he secured. His joy is from God and God alone. David has looked to God as his refuge and he has found the joy his heart desired. Now, some of you might be sitting there rolling your eyes saying this. Of course he does. But you know what, Pastor? I've tried God, and it doesn't work. You know, I have that desire that you're talking about, the desire for comfort and joy. And I've actually thought about using God and, and tried, but, but that doesn't work. God doesn't satisfy the tension, Pastor. So what do you got for me? Here's what I got for you. I understand your thoughts. I understand the disappointment that you might have right now for not experiencing joy with God. Because I felt this too at times. But before you dismiss this thought, the, 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 the very disposition of David's heart of finding joy in God even amidst the pain, here, here's, here's a challenge to you. I want you to consider, have you really considered God? Have you considered God for your joy and your comfort in life? 
Have you done that? Reconsider this. Because I believe in this poem, we have ancient knowledge, biblical wisdom, and godly insight that actually leads us to finding joy and comfort amidst pain and suffering. I want you to begin to doubt yourself a little bit here and to say, maybe I haven't really looked to God. That's what I want you to consider. To consider that you could actually be wrong in this particular situation. Because ultimately, I think we can find joy from God even amidst life's difficulties. And the reason why I think this is because David's disposition throughout the meat of this poem leads us to greater depth and understanding, knowledge and insight. There are three particular important realities of David from this poem that we learn that really truly grasp what it means to cling to God for joy. The first is a unique perspective on living. The second is, is this, that David is completely and utterly dependent on God. And the third is that David has embraced the hope that God gives. So if we're gonna find the very comfort that David found in God, then we too, amidst life's difficulties, gain perspective, live dependently, and embrace hope. This is what the meat of that poem presents to us. That this is what David has, that he has a perspective. He lives dependent on God, and he embraces hope. I wanna study these three realities that we too might find comfort and joy amidst life difficulties. You with me? Let's do this. First, let's gain perspective. Look with me at what David says in verse four. Look what he says. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You must see in this statement that David is referring to this kind of priestly reality There's this religious act that's taking place. You have drink offerings of blood, sacrifice. You hear that? And what David is saying is that I have this perspective of living that is impacted by the way I've watched other people live. David sees how people live in this tension between desire for comfort and joy and the pain. And he says people run after gods and they make offerings to them with blood. And what David's saying is that people are trying to get the attention of God by making sacrifices, by by doing things with great devotion, and that when they get the gods of the universe to see their devotions, pouring out a great sacrifice for these gods, the gods will then give them the relief that they need. But David says, I will not do this. The belief of the world, the perspective that David has of the world, of what so many people have, is that if you want joy, you have to sacrifice for it. You have to work really hard. You work hard so you can play hard. That's the perspective of the world. And David says, I will not do that. I will not pour out. I will not take their names on my lips. David rejects sacrificing for joy Understanding that God is not someone who can be manipulated. God is far too big for our manipulation. And David's perspective is that I'm going to reject this way of living. For such a way of living is idolatrous. You know, it's easy to see these verses. And when you talk about idols and you you think about people pouring out their blood for 
and sacrificing to manipulate the gods. It's easy for us in this world and day and age where there's not temples, where blood is thrown around, literally thrown around, and you see these things. But it's true of our world that there are little idols where we make sacrifices all the time so that these little gods would grant us a little bit of relief of comfort and joy in the midst of pain and sorrow. These little G gods are anything other than the true God for joy and comfort. And this can literally be our children, the acceptance of our peers, the winning record of a sports teams, our jobs, the way we look, the, the clothes we wear, the fame we carry, the power we have, and even religion. Yes, religion. For people can use religion to try to manipulate God. Hey, I went to church. You should fill in the blank. It's manipulation. These are gods in which we sacrifice in order to find joy from our pain. We can work hard. We can do all these things and just expect joy. But what David sees in this reality, he says that the sorrows of those who chase after these gods, guess what? Their sorrows will multiply. That if we chase after these small g gods for leap, things are only gonna get worse, not better. And this is because the gods of the wor world will only ask us for more and more. If you look to your career for joy and comfort, consider what happens when you retire. No longer will you be acknowledged for the tasks you performed and recognized for your great intellect. There will not be a boss. There will be not, not be a board that says, you are so good. It will be you in your own mind. If you look to that job for comfort and joy, that comfort and joy is now gone. You can say the same about a physical, our physical appearance. As we grow older, we won't be able to lean on our good looks for comfort. And look, I recognize I've got a bald spot growing in the back of my head. It's not easy for me, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Brandon. <laughs> so I can't look at my looks any longer. I got a wife. We're good. But in looking to my good looks or whatever it might be for you, you know, the older you get, the more they'll disappoint. They'll require more and more, and you won't be able to find the joy in that. David rejects this disposition. His perspective is that I will not sacrifice to these gods. I just am going to do something different. A few years ago, Jim Carrey, yes, the Jim Carrey from Dumb and Dumber gave a profound commencement speech at Miriashi International University. And this man who played Lloyd Christmas, the one who said, we've landed on the moon, said these profound words to a graduating class who was about to go into the world, make money, and find meaning. He said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous like me and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Having received the comfort from the material possessions of the world, Carrie learned that the gods of our world, whether it be money, fame, success, do not ultimately provide the comfort and joy we think that they will provide. And he looked to these co graduating college students and he says, don't chase these things. He had gained, like David, a perspective on the little gods that cannot satisfy in the tensions of life. And it is the perspective that I'm calling all of us to embrace. If you think 
you can manipulate God and the little g-gods of your life to find comfort and joy from life's realities, this is the perspective you must embrace. It's only going to bring sorrow and more disappointment. David had this perspective, but do you? Oh, that you would gain this perspective, that you wouldn't look to your children for joy and comfort and your ultimate comfort, or your job, or your sports teams, and I know that's easy for Arkansas people to, to give up their sports teams, I get it. But understanding where we look to for comfort is vitally important to turning to God, who does indeed offer comfort amidst life's tension. See, finding comfort from God doesn't come from having this, uh, this perspective of life that we can manipulate God. It comes from making a conscious decision to secondly live dependently on God. I want you, we're gonna look at verses five, six, seven, and eight. And what, I'm, I, what I want you to see is that not only did David have this perspective of the world, that the world chases after these idols and it's trying to find comfort amidst the tension of life and difficulties and pains, but that he made the decision to live dependent on God. Look at what he says in verse five. The Lord, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In night, my, also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David makes the conscious decision to live dependently on God. And he does this because he says there's three realities of God that he trusts and he knows. The first reality that, God, that, that David knows of God that is so vitally important for him in living his life dependent on him is that this, God ordains. There's three realities of God that David understands, and I want you to know these things, that God ordains. David has made the choice to live dependent on God because God ordains his lot. He says this in verse five. Now, what is a lot? It's not a piece of land that you, he owns, though it could be. A lot is another way of saying that God is the one who gives him everything. His land, his resources, his life, his everything, his pain, his difficulties. This is his lot. God is the one who gives David his lot. But notice what David says of the lot that God brings to David. He says in verse six, the lines, and you can think of like, the lines of his lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What does David trust? He says this, that what God has ordained for me is actually a blessed reality for me. What God has given to me is for my good. Perhaps Paul, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, when he penned this famous phrase that so many of you know, Romans 8, 28, perhaps Paul was thinking of David in Psalm 16 when he wrote, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. David depends on God because God ordains everything for him and he trusts that it is good for him. This is so important for us to live dependent on God. 
In fact, I would say this is the heart of the matter, of this whole entire message. Do you trust yourself to bring the comfort and joy that you long for? Or do you trust God? Are you the Lord of your life or someone else? Then, do you trust that the Lord, if you say, okay, maybe it is God, do you trust that he is good? And here's a problem for so many of us in this room. We want goodness to happen right now. But David, in his verse 6, he actually doesn't even consider right now, does he? He says, indeed, I have a beautiful what? Inheritance. What comes down the road? If you have lost a mom or dad or down the road, it's an inheritance. David has depended on the God who ordains everything, and he trusts that God is good. And I want to ask you this question. Do you trust that God is the Lord of your life and that he's bringing good? Do you trust that? It is a very pointed question. That whatever the Lord has ordained for your life, it is actually meant for your good. Do you believe that? David did. And this is key to finding comfort amidst pain and sorrow in this life. But there's a second reality that David embraced. Not only did, did David um, look that as a God who ordains all things, but he looked to God who guides. God, he lives dependent on God because God guides him. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. God has not left David without wisdom. He guides David how he lives. I, 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 I presume that this is referring to the word of God that he's given in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Certainly he would have recalled Joshua and maybe even the stories of Judges. But he looks at these things of God given to him through, through Moses and he says these are the ways in which God counsels me. This is how God guides me. David here shows a tremendous amount of humility in saying that, God, you are the one who guide me, not me. You are the one who counsels me. He acknowledges his need for this guidance and counsel. It is an act of humility. And God indeed has given him this counsel. So David trusts that God does indeed give him the way to live. I mean, how often do we disregard the counsel of God in our life's decisions? It's oftentimes multiple times a day. Yet David here blesses the Lord for the counsel he gives. He trusts that the counsel that the Lord gives through his word is what is best. And David chooses that word over his own. To live dependent on God's word, not his own. But there's one last reality of David that he embraces and lives dependent on God. And he recognizes this, that God establishes that God establishes. What do I mean by that? Well, look what David says at the end of verse eight. The last words that David says is this, I will not be moved. People may come at me, the Philistines, all the, 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 the people of God, or, or, or the enemies of God. Satan may assail me, but as a child of God, I will not be moved. I cannot be moved. And what is David real about, realize about this. 
he realizes that God has the power to establish his own. God is present and strong. And when God is strong and present with us, we cannot be moved. The God of the universe is with us. The God of all strength and might. And because he is with us, we cannot be moved. David trusts God that he will do this. To find comfort amidst the tension of life, amidst the pain and the suffering that we all face, David has chosen to live dependent on God, rejecting the perspective of the world that says we must sacrifice for God. But he has one last reality that I think is so important for all of us in this room to embrace, and that is this. David, in his psalm, has embraced hope. And if we are going to find comfort amidst pain and sorrow, we need to embrace this hope as well. Look at what David finds in verse 9 and 10. David finds comfort from God because even in the face of death, God gives comfort. David embraced this hope that God provides, and it brought him gladness and joy. It brought a peace of mind. He says this, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David believed in a preserved life after death and this brought him hope. And even though he didn't have stories of Jesus resurrected, he would have heard stories like Enoch being taken up before his life ended. He had very limited data on resurrection, and yet David embraced the hope of a, resur- of a resurrection to come. And this brought him joy. Here's the thing about, about the pain and suffering. Ultimately, pain and suffering leads to death. Death is our ultimate enemy in this grand scheme of our desire for joy and comfort. You know that, right? Death is our great enemy. And David has chosen to embrace the hope of God in resurrection. And he didn't even know about Jesus. Church, we know about Jesus. We know that three days after he was crucified, the The stone of the tomb where Jesus was buried was moved away and the living Savior walked out of there. The one who was crucified, died and buried, now lives. And there's testimony after testimony and testimony and testimony of hundreds of people who saw the living Lord with their own eyes, who touched his hands. We have ample reason to embrace the hope of the great gospel of life after death. Church, embrace the hope of the resurrection. And death, it will seem so very small. Pain and suffering, so very small. For we have a God who's greater than even death. If we are gonna find our comfort from God, we've got to have the perspective that David did. The ways of the world will not work. We've got to live dependently on God because of who he is, and we've got to embrace the hope that God brings, particularly through the resurrection from the dead. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the first fruit of those who look to Jesus for hope, meaning we too will be raised just as he is raised.
For those who look to God and look to Christ for their salvation, you too will be raised. A few years ago, um, the now dead Tim Keller sat down at, the, at Columbia University in front of hundreds to share his faith. There was a lot covered in this interview, but one of the particular te- sections that caught my attention had to do with the story he said of after he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And if you know his story, that he, he passed away this past year from another form of cancer. But when he had thyroid cancer several years ago, he was sitting in the hospital bed being treated for this cancer. And while he was there, he read the massive book titled The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. And Keller said, before I read this book, I believed that Jesus was resurrected. I mean, I believed it. But sitting in the bed, faced with certain death, or my death at some point, because I have cancer, as I read the book, the only thing that I could come away with was this, and he says, you have, to, you have to think through these realities. It's real. The, the, the resurrection is really now real. Now I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. It's real that I will live. Folks, the resurrection happened. That's what Keller was convinced of, and that enabled him to embrace the hope of the resurrection. It's yours too. Embrace it, and you too can find comfort in this life even amidst pain and suffering. About once a year, I watch the HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers. And perhaps my favorite episode in this series is the episode titled, Carentan. In this episode, there is a first private named Albert Blythe who is featured, who is followed in the story. And Blythe, when he, when he parachuted into France, quickly became overcome by the trauma and the fear of war. He was tasked with fighting, but he didn't do the fighting he was called to live. He couldn't handle it. And he was paralyzed from his fear, stunned. One evening, as the fighting settled down for the night, he sat in his foxhole, weeping, curled up into a ball, screaming out loud. But into that foxhole came a brave and valiant lieutenant named Spears, Spears came as a lieutenant who's over him and gave him these words. They're words that I think about quite often. And he says this to the shaking, scared, fearful soldier, Blythe. He says, you know what your problem is, Blythe? You still think there's hope. The only hope you have is to accept the fact that you are already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you will be able to function as a soldier. Now, those words are stark. But when Spears leaves that foxhole and goes to the next one, Blythe is sitting there, and the next thing you see is you see Blythe somehow magically, mysteriously changing his disposition. No longer was he overcome by fear, but he began to become a soldier. He began to fight as he was given. Now, what do we make of this scene? What do I make of this scene? What was the mysterious interaction that took place between Spears and Blight that enabled Blight to become a soldier, to fight as he was commanded to fight? What was it? It was this. That he, in his own power, was never going to win that war by himself. 
that he needed to become a soldier just like everyone else. He needed to die to himself and fight amongst his soldiers as a soldier. But the key there is this. He needed to die to himself. This is the lesson for us as we look for comfort amidst life and pain. Die to self. If we die to ourselves and die to us taking control, finding comfort in the midst of life's pain and sorrow, we will actually find comfort. We will be like Blythe and say, you know what, I can fight. And the beautiful thing about the promises of Psalm 16 is that we actually will experience the very joy and comfort that comes from God. If you want to find comfort and resolution from this tension that I know exists in your life, you must turn to God. See the perspective. Gain the perspective that David understood is that if I don't turn to God, I'm going to suffer more and more and more and more. I'm going to choose to live dependent on God and I'm going to embrace the hope that God himself gives when you do that. You like David in Psalm 1611 will say these words. You'll say these words. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the promise, and that is yours if you turn to God, if you repent and be loved. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we give thanks for this beautiful psalm, a psalm of great knowledge, wisdom, and insight. May we ultimately find the same comfort and joy that David himself found. Help us to turn from all the ways that we look to ourselves to find this comfort, Oh, may we we turn away from looking to meaningless, small G gods. And may we turn to you and find the comfort and joy even amidst pain and suffering. We give thanks that we're made for joy, that ultimately we're made to live and to laugh and enjoy one another. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.